There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast. Notice my new inflection Ooh, today, are man. you enthusiastic today? <laughs> Greg, last week we talked about factors of return. A fun discussion. I always like talking about factors of return, actually. Especially when people ask which stocks to buy. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, a little bit of a different discussion. Today we're on the fourth of five episodes in our mini-series on Back to Basics. As I said at the first one, it's sort of a lead-up to Back to School in September. We're going back to basics with investing. And today we're going to talk about the silent killer. That is the silent killer of returns, Greg. Fees, expenses, and taxes. The less you pay, the more you keep, as they say. And that's important to understand, right? Absolutely. But the capital markets are not charities. There are fees to investing. There are taxes that have to be paid when you make money. But of course, I never quite get that concept of people being upset of having to pay taxes when they've made money versus not making money. Isn't one side better than the other? Certainly. But I think it's important to pay the taxes that you need to, but not pay taxes that are avoidable. Of course, because there's always going to be fees. You just need to know and understand which ones are expected and reasonable and which ones are just dragging you down. And to start that off, Greg, I got a little song for us. Maybe I'll play it while we have a little banter here. Sure. You might recognize this one. Got a cash register? Sounds familiar. Somebody's paying the fees, Greg. Sounds like something from the 1970s. You know this song. I know you know it. I do know this song. Is that kind of like a little dig about my age again? Nope, never. I would never bug you about being bald or older. Oh, here we go. (laughs) Or balder or older. (laughs) It's always about the hair, isn't it? (laughs) All right, anyways. Let's get into it. Okay. As you mentioned, there are costs to everything. That's to be expected. But as our clients and anybody who's listened to this podcast know, we believe that there are really three things you can control. You can control your asset allocation. You can control your diversification. And you can control your costs. Beyond that, your returns and your investment experience overall is going to be determined how the market behaves. So in the last couple of episodes, we've talked about asset allocation We've talked about diversification, and today we're going to talk about costs. And you identified three types of costs that are incurred in investment management, and I'm going to break them down. You could characterize these a little bit differently, but I'm going to break them down into three main areas. The first is fees, and here what I'm talking about is fees for advice. So whether you work with a full-service advisory firm like ours, when we're owned by a bank, as many are, whether you work with an independent firm or even a robo-advisor, there's going to be fees for advice. And those fees can vary fairly broadly from firm to firm and even within firms from advisor to advisor. So we'll delve into those in just a minute. There's some marketing out there these days that tries to, I don't know, paint the wrong picture. So people don't actually know what fees they're actually paying in some of these places. 
Exactly. And so it's really important that people understand the fees. Fees have to be transparent. People need to know what they pay. Any of us would expect that for whatever we're buying. And so that's really critical. The second area of costs would be expenses. And what I'm talking about here, those would be the costs of like implementing a specific investment approach. For example, if you buy individual securities, first of all, there's going to be some transaction costs involved, commissions. If you buy ETFs or mutual funds, there's going to be within those management fees, which are earned by the managers of the funds, plus any other costs that are associated with trading, custody of securities, administration, and in some cases, even marketing. So in many cases, people are paying costs for the fund provider to market their own products. Now, there's been a ton of compression on those expenses over the years, though. In your time in this industry, you've seen them go down dramatically. Massive compression, which is a good thing. It's good for everybody. It's good for the industry. It's good for investors, for sure. But some of it's been shifted. In the U.S., you can trade stocks for free, essentially, at some of these platforms. That's right. But it's not really free because there's something called order flow that comes into play. Like the company still makes money somewhere. The company makes money and the question is, well, who pays for it? And the answer is probably all of us to some extent because it's reflected either in costs of the transactions themselves or even impact on trading prices. Those are expenses. And then the third thing, which is not talked about quite as much, but is critically important are taxes. And here, if you're not careful, the government is your partner. They're sharing your returns. So taxes as you mentioned, can silently eat away at your return. And it's important to know that different investment strategies and approaches can either help to minimize tax or can actually work against you and increase your taxes and therefore reducing your after-tax returns. But at the end of the day, there's going to be taxes collected. You can't do tax evasion. No. But you can definitely do tax avoidance in the legal areas. And you can do tax deferral. And tax deferral, in many cases is basically tax saved. And we'll talk about that a little bit. I got a question for you on taxes. We pay a fair amount of taxes, you and I. Sadly, that's true. I think I've paid way more taxes in this last year than the last president of the United States paid in the last many years, is what I've been reading anyways. That's right. (laughs) I don't believe he paid tax at all. (laughs) That might be called tax evasion. I'm just throwing it out there. Well, it's because he's smart and he's using the tax system to his advantage. Yes, of course. But anyway, we won't get too far into that. Let's go back into those three areas of costs that I talked about and go into a little bit more detail. So the first one was advisory fees. Now, when I talk about advisory fees, what I'm really talking about here is a certain type of approach whereby people pay a fee for advice. And it's usually a fee based on the number of assets being managed, things like that, or in some of our discretionary accounts where clients or investors give us the authority to manage their accounts and make investment decisions for them. And so those would be advisory fees. And we've talked about these a little bit in the past. When you're investing, you've got two basic choices. You can either engage an advisor or you can go it alone. We talked about do-it-yourselfers as regards to investing as well as other things in life. And that's totally a personal decision and depends on the individual investor's confidence, ability, and time. And hopefully ability and time are the most important of those because we know everybody is confident and in some cases overconfident and that can actually detract from investment decisions. And people can do it by themselves. Of course. There's a lot of information out on the interweb 
these days that will actually teach people how to trade and how to invest. But there's a difference there, and we'll get into that a little bit. And again, we're not saying people shouldn't sort of manage their own investments. What we're saying, though, is that it's not maybe as simple as it sometimes seems, and that there can be pitfalls that you have to be aware of. And it's not that people can't learn those. They just need to have the ability and spend the time to do it wisely. Just go to YouTube. I'm sure there's a video. That's true. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So the decision to use an advisor would have to be based on a belief that the advisor has credentials, experience, and knowledge that's going to assist investors in developing the most appropriate investment strategy and investment plan that an investor can live with. I think it's critical to understand what services exactly are provided for the advisory fee. And so let's talk about some of those services, which include, but are certainly not limited to the following. One is understanding everything about an investor's personal situation, which allows the advisor to develop a financial plan that clearly identifies their goals and values, financial position and outlook, tolerance and capacity for risk, which actually are two different things, and any other factors that will ultimately help or in fact be critical in developing an appropriate investment strategy and plan. There's a lot in there. There's a lot. And we've talked a lot over the last year and a half or however long we've been doing these podcasts about developing a plan. And the planning piece is really, I can tell you 25 years ago, it was really not a big issue because when people came to us, they didn't want to talk about financial planning. They wanted to talk about what was the best stock to buy, what's going to go up this year, where should we be? And so there's really been a significant shift in terms of focusing on planning because it's the old thing. How do you develop an investment strategy if you don't know what the goal is? The ones that stick out there for me are, and we've talked about on a specific episode about planning, is risk tolerance versus risk capacity. Those are just two majorly different things. That's right. Just because you have the ability to tolerate lots of volatility doesn't mean you have the capacity to withstand it financially. Exactly. And only the financial plan can identify that. If you know that you're not able to withstand a 20% downturn in the stock market because that'll derail your retirement plans or whatever other plans you have in mind, then you cannot have an investment strategy that might expose you to that kind of downside risk. Okay, also, what else do advisors provide? They understand the full range of investment options available in order to help the investors achieve their goals over an appropriate period of time. And so there's literally tens of thousands probably of investment choices. There's three or 4,000 mutual funds that you could select, thousands of ETFs, 10,000 individual securities. So really, it's important that the advice includes an understanding and some due diligence on those investment options that are available. Well, you can drown in the number of investment options out there. I mean, I was reading that there are more mutual funds trading in the US than individual stocks. Exactly. So and each of those funds owns a variation of stocks. And I believe the same is true for ETFs as well. So it's crazy. So what else do you get? You get investment strategy and appropriate products for the portfolio. And one of the things we're going to talk about a little bit later when it comes to taxes is also advising on asset location. So here we're not talking about what's the right asset allocation, but we're talking about where should the appropriate products go? Do they go inside a non-registered account or inside a registered or tax deferred account, because that's part of tax minimization. Rebalancing portfolio on a regular basis, providing coaching, particularly during times of extreme market volatility, because 
it's important to be able to help investors through those emotionally challenging periods. And of course, as we know, those are the periods when the headlines are screaming. And so not only do you have like the actual reality of what's going on with the markets and therefore your investment portfolio and therefore your being on track to achieve your goals, you've also got every newspaper, if anybody reads those anymore, or headlines, any news, just screaming about how terrible things are. So the coaching is really critical. And there's obviously a host of other services that are provided for that advisory fee. I want to go back to that mention on asset location. Just talk about that for a minute. This one is an important one to me. I know you're going to get into taxation a little bit later, but I think this fits in well here, is that where you hold certain assets attracts different tax rates. And some of that is beneficial and some of it is not. Typically, when we're working with clients and we figure out their asset allocation because we've done a plan and determine how much risk capacity they have, when we're actually investing the money, we want to be very aware of what type of accounts different assets are going into. So, for example, in registered accounts, so RRSP or registered retirement income fund accounts, whatever those might be, what would you want to hold there primarily, Greg? I would want to hold types of securities that attract a high level of tax, like fixed income bonds, which attract interest income, and those are taxed at the highest rate. So then in your tax-free savings account, you'd want to hold things that attract the highest expected rate of return because of the long-term nature of that. And so that would be, Greg? Well, I would say equities. Yep. You're two for two, by the way. And I would also say you could also include fixed income in there as well, just because of the fact that you will never pay tax on it. And depending on your asset allocation and the available assets, it may force you to look at things outside of the registered accounts, the RSPs and the RIFs for those as well. And then everything else is held in your non-registered accounts. Equities would attract dividend tax credits and things like that and capital gains taxation. But it's very common when we're going through this asset allocation strategy with clients that in some cases, their RSP might be 100% invested in bonds and their TFSA is 100% invested in equities and then everything else is in between. And that's by design. Exactly. Yeah. Sorry, I went off on a tangent Not at on all. That, but- Not at all. So what's a reasonable and typical fee for advisory services? Well, you can find fees. And again, as I mentioned earlier, it can differ quite broadly, not only between different types of firms, but even within firms, different advisors might have different fees. And typically the range could be anywhere from half a percent for large accounts, anywhere to up to one and a half or even 1.75% for smaller accounts. So that's the range. We believe in our group that a fee of 1% or less is reasonable. And even looking at robo-advisors, which don't provide a dedicated advisor to understand you or your family situation, those type of advisors will typically charge an overall asset fee of 04 to 0.5%, depending on the size of the account. So again, we're not talking about right or wrong. I'm just saying these are typically what the fees are. And again, the decision you have to make is what do you get for the fees? Well, and even before we get into that, I got something in the mail a few months ago. It was from one of these robo-advisor firms. I won't mention them by name, but it rhymes with Health Wimple. Oh, yes. And <laughs> the fee that they quoted when you read through the fine print actually was the same fee that we charged, but interesting for a lot less service. So I found that to be quite interesting to read. Right Anyways, on. Russell Investments puts out something every year. It's called the Cost of Advice Report or the Value of an Advisor Study. What they look at are five things. They call them A, B, C, P, and T. And A stands for 
active rebalancing of investment portfolios. B is behavioral coaching. C is customized client experience and planning. P is product alignment. And T is tax smart planning and investing. And they actually assign values to each of these areas, these five areas, to try to determine, well, what is the value of receiving investment advice, Greg? So they quantify it in terms of potential return. Now, they do it in Canada and they do it in the U.S. I won't go into the U.S. numbers too much, but the Canadian numbers for the year 2020. Do you remember something happening in the year 2020 that was quite significant in our lives? Oh, I'm thinking of, I just can't put my finger on it. Maybe a global pandemic of biblical proportions? Yeah, global pandemic, global economic shutdown, things that hopefully we won't have to experience again anytime soon or to that magnitude. Anyways, the fee that they assigned to that or the value of advice was 2.88% per year. How does that break out? Well, it breaks out by active rebalancing added 0.1%, behavioral coaching added 1%, customized client experience and planning added 0.4%, product alignment was 0.72%, and tax smart planning and investing was 0.66%. The one there that really sticks out is the behavioral one. A full 1% difference is what they've attributed to working with an advisor versus going it alone. That's important because that's 1% per year. So that's a compounding 1%. Well, it is. And we've talked a lot about behavioral biases and how being human leads us to make either impulsive decisions or decisions based on fear or greed, either of those two. And so just with some coaching and having somebody to talk to about some of these things before making a decision can help in real terms. Well, and it's very easy to say, yeah, but I knew that that was going to happen, so I did this, or I knew this was coming up, so I did that. That's all a bunch of nonsense. I had a meeting a few weeks ago with somebody, and they were talking about what happened last year and how, well, they knew it would come back, so they just knew it was going to be that way. So if they were managing it on their own, they would have invested more. Sure. And you know what? We all do it. And I do it myself, despite having been in the business for over 25 years. I still look back and shake my head. And how did we not know when we heard that there was a pandemic in China and they were actually like shutting down whole cities? One of our own team members was in China at the time and basically was quarantined for the full four weeks that she was there. And yet, how is it that we didn't know that that was going to cause a big problem? Like, of course, we knew that was going to be a problem. We just didn't do anything about it. And that line of thinking is exactly wrong. We didn't know. Just like when the market was down 35%, gee, I should have backed up the truck and mortgaged the house to buy stocks because everybody knew that stocks were going to come back up. Well, we didn't know that. We've been through two bear markets where the markets were down 50%. So when we were only down 35%, there was still another 15 to go. Of course, we didn't know that at the time. It's just so easy to believe that we knew it at the time because of what we now know. So the data for the study comes from that historical evidence of what people did and didn't do during different market cycles. It's not data we've come up with. It's data that has been quantified by a bunch of intelligent people that are tracking it. Exactly. So i got to believe that it's real. Probably. You could argue maybe some people might say, well, it's not 2.88% per year. Maybe, but it's some percentage. But hopefully it's something. And hopefully that's why investors choose to work with advisors like us. Well, especially if you just said on average, we believe a fee of 1% or less is reasonable. Let's just talk about the value of that. You're paying 1% or less and getting somewhere around 2.88% per year and just value of advice. That's certainly the hope, you bet. 
The second type of costs that we talked about were expenses, and these are pretty straightforward to understand. Transaction fees or commissions. In a transactional account, and certainly the way the industry was 25, 35 years ago, basically the advisor called you up to make a trade. They did the trade and you paid whatever the transaction fee was and you didn't have a lot of choice. In the early days, that could have been 2% of the value of the transaction. You do a $20,000 transaction, $400. And that's one way. And so when the advisor would call up to sell that stock, sometime later, there'd be another 2% of the other way. So you're giving up 4% in those days. So if you're up 10% and you paid 4% in transaction costs, you're really only up 6%. Exactly. And then you got taxes on top of that. Right on. So, Ooh, so commissions are a part of certain types of businesses. But again, the good news is those commissions have come down a long way over the years. There's operating costs in mutual funds or ETFs, just the cost of doing business, of doing transactions within the fund, of safe custody, of assets. There's management fees. So whether you buy an ETF or a management or a mutual fund, there's a management fee, which the manager gets paid for selecting the securities that are going in there. And as well in the, what we'll call advisor class mutual funds. So in the case of transactional accounts where investors are not paying a fee for service, so to speak, or a fee for advice, there are service fees built into those funds, which typically would be anywhere from half a percent to 1%. And these could be the same for mutual funds that are sold at the bank level. There's this misconception that people don't pay any fees in certain mutual fund structures. That's just not true. I mean, No, that's right. There's fees built in even when you buy a GIC. Yes. And people think, well, I don't pay anything to buy a GIC. That's nonsense. No, exactly. And that's part of life. And again, the key thing here is not that they're bad. It's just that you need to understand what they are. And if you have the ability to minimize them as much as possible, then you want to take advantage of that. Well, and I think our industry regulator, as much as I like to be hard on them. Actually, some of the reforms they've put forward are to make those fees transparent. So you've That's got right. client-focused reforms coming forward this year. And a couple of years ago, they introduced the more transparency in fees and rates of return, which are now reported every December on the year-end statement. Trading expenses, we've talked about in previous episodes, the trading expense ratio or the TER, those are the actual costs of trading that are always incurred in mutual funds and ETFs, but not reported as part of the management expense ratio. So it's important to know those. Yeah, it seems crazy that the MER is always reported and the TER is not. I don't really understand, but... It's a bit unusual, but it's a fee. And then there are, of course, custody fees or RSP administration fees, things like that, which again, typically are more common in transactional accounts than they are in fee-based accounts. So what are the typical expenses that we want to go through here? Well, listen, I mean... There are some incredibly inexpensive investment options. And so some ETFs, like the broad index ETFs, whether it's the TSX Composite Index or the S&P 500 Index, those can be as little as five or seven basis points. So that's what that means is- 0.05%. That's right. And as you get into more diversified ETFs, so let's say you don't just want the index, let's say you want to have international funds in the portfolio, or as we've talked about, in the last episode, when we talk about sector funds to get exposure to those, I shouldn't say sector, factor funds, where you want to get exposure to those factors that give you higher expected returns, those kinds of things, that could increase fees to 0.45 or even 0.6% or higher for an ETF. Now, mutual funds, there's a lot of people who still think mutual funds, oh, I don't like mutual funds, their fees are too high. And there's no question, 25 years ago, Mutual fund fees were easily in the range of 25 to 3%. And there was one well-known fund company in Canada that I won't mention, which fees greatly exceeded 3%. 
and they also had fees to acquire the funds in the first place. So those were the bad old days, and those days are largely gone, again, thanks to a lot of those client-focused reforms that you've been talking about, to a point where there's many, many mutual funds and mutual fund providers that provide fantastic market exposure, well-diversified strategies and diversification, and extremely low costs. And what I'm talking about there are management fees of about 0.25% or 25 basis points, so extremely low cost for the kind of diversification that you can get now. And the last thing we'll talk about were taxes. And we've talked a little bit about that already. So we talked about asset location. So highly taxed types of securities, such as bonds, you'd want to have in registered accounts, whether they're RSPs or RIFs. And more tax-efficient securities, like stocks, can be in non-registered accounts and tax-free savings accounts. The other thing, though, that affects tax is trading activity. And so when you look at A lot of investors might have non-registered accounts where they hold their stocks, but they're doing lots of trading. Okay, so they might have turnover with 50% of the portfolio, meaning that every year you're replacing half of the securities you own. That ends up triggering tax. And if you've been lucky enough to be in periods like we have largely for the last 12 years, stocks have largely gone up. And so every time you sell, you're triggering tax, you're paying tax, and then the money that's left to invest afterwards is your after-tax dollars. Now, if you had a very similar strategy, but you were in a different fund structure, you might not be triggering as that, much or any of well, those Well, that's right. Taxes. And so here we're talking about whether it's you as an individual investor who is buying and selling the stocks actively, or it's your fund manager who's buying and selling the stocks actively, the more turnover, the more tax is going to be payable in the current year. And that can be a very significant amount. And even with the preferential tax rates on capital gains, your money that's available after tax to invest is less. And there's other portfolios or mutual funds or funds that have very low turnover by design. And those funds tend to capitalize on all the growth that's available in the markets, but they don't trigger the tax each year, which means that you don't have to pay tax each year and the investment can continue to grow and grow until at some point there will be tax to pay down the road. But as my accountant tells me, tax deferred is tax saved. Because when you do finally have to pay the tax, it could be 20 years down the road. And in the meantime, you're avoiding that silent killer. You're avoiding the silent killer while you're deferring it. And when you pay for it, you're paying it with deflated dollars. Inflation does affect all of us. And maybe year to year, it's relatively low at 2%. But over a long period of time, it could be 20-30%. When you're paying your tax down the road with those deflated dollars, essentially, it's saving you money. So that's it. Those are the silent partners in investing. We've got fees, expenses, and taxes, and anything we can do to manage those, to control them, and most importantly, to make sure that everyone's aware of what they're actually paying, the better it'll be to the bottom line. Exactly. Because there's no point in paying excess fees or taxes if you don't have to. That's just the point we're trying to make. I know that, listen, talking about fees and taxes isn't the most exciting thing out there. But it is the discussion that many advisors don't like to have because they find it uncomfortable or feel like they're being challenged to defend their fees. And I think for us, it's more a function of, hey, it's your money. You deserve to know exactly how it's being spent and what value you're getting for it. And if you're working with somebody that doesn't want to talk about it, well, maybe give us a call. We'll talk to you about it. That's right. All right. Well, listen, that was 
I want to say that was fun, but I mean, it was taxes. Yeah, really. Right? How fun is that? <laughs> but next time we're going to talk about dividends, market cycles, and something else. I think. Headlines. Headlines, right. And I'm looking forward to that one. Me too. All yeah. right. See you next week. Next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2021.